Hey everyone, and welcome to On Trial, the podcast where we explore how to build your practice, trial tactics, and what can make or break your case. We're your hosts, I'm Matt Heimlich. And I'm John Riswold. And today we're going to talk about nursing litigation. Nursing home litigation is the topic. Um, but before we get into that, John, let's, let's get an update from you. We're all still stuck at home. How are you dealing with things on your end with business? I'm good. You might be able to hear in the background that my kids are running around, running, around, running wild. Um, that's part of the challenge is making sure that I'm staying on top of everything while making sure that I'm being a good parent, which has been uh, a challenge. I'm sure many have experienced that challenge, but the cases are going well. Um, we're being, uh, we're able to find um, some real creative ways to get some justice for clients, whether it be using Zoom uh, or phone conferences or whatever it might be. Cases are moving forward and, and we're getting great results. So it's been good. How about you? Yeah, we've been trying to leverage the technology as much as possible to keep things moving, uh, same as you. I've also had some time to do some deep, deeper looks at cases that I've been meeting to review, uh, some medical negligence type cases that you know are pretty complicated, pretty records intensive. So it's nice to have the time and you know being able to take the time to really do a deep dive and look at the records, make sure we have everything we need uh, for a medical review, and you know make sure that all our ducks in a row because you know, the statute of limitations are coming up, things like that. You know, it's good to make sure you have everything in order. Yeah, I just had a, a defense attorney drop a couple thousand pages worth of uh, records on me for one of my clients before the the injury and the accident. And uh, it should make for an interesting Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday of review, right? Um, but it's important because you never know what you might find that could be helpful. Oh, absolutely. There's it's, it's so important to know the ins and outs of your case. And a lot of times, especially in auto accident type cases, uh, the prior medical history is just as important as the subsequent medical history. You really got to know what was going on with your client before the injury uh, to compare their functionality before af- and after. So it's a really important thing to do, although it is, it's a bear. It really is a bear to get through all that stuff. It's the hard work for sure. But speaking of ins and outs, today we're talking about something that you really know the ins and the outs of. We're talking about nursing home litigation, which I know you've spent a large part of your career building a nursing home practice on both the defense and now on the plaintiff side. Um, So let's just sort of jump right into it. Tell me, how did you get started um, in this niche area? Well, it was basically the job that I was hired for. Uh, My first job was at a firm that primarily did nursing home defense work, uh, which is a very busy practice area in Illinois. So from right out of school, I was in the medical records. I was organizing charts. I was reviewing charts. I was figuring out what was missing because that is honestly a lot of the issues with nursing home cases. It's not necessarily what's in the chart, but what's not in the chart or what should be there. So I had to figure out those issues firsthand. Um, And then, you know, we had to prep and present nursing home employee witnesses, which uh, they run the gamut as far as uh, sophistication, as far as, you know, a lot of them are foreign nationals where English is their second language. And that poses its own set of issues uh, with communication, with having them understand what's going on. Um, So that was, and, you know, working those cases up, was primarily what I did for about the first eight years of my practice. And so after doing that for about eight years, what made you, what prompted you to um, sort of flip the script and come over to the plaintiff side to do a lot of 
you know, medical malpractice and nursing home work still, but representing injured people with their families as well. What, what prompted that and how did that go? Right. I started doing a little bit of personal injury and medical malpractice work on the side at my old firm, and which I had a boss who was lenient enough and allowed me to pursue that. Uh, he knew that it was something I was interested in and he knew it was something I was passionate about. So he allowed me to do that. Um, but ultimately I had a couple cases with uh, Mike Satina, one of the partners in my firm, we were opposing each other. We got on real well. Um, we worked the cases out. We had a good relationship that's built up over, you know, the years of litigation associated with these kinds of cases. And then one day, you know, he reached out. He said they were looking for someone uh, and he thought of me and things just kind of took off from there. I ended up accepting the job and jumping the fence. And I've, it's been great ever since. That's fantastic. It's got to be, uh, it's got to be nice. At least, you know, I'm saying this from a biased perspective. It's got to be nice to jump that fence and feel like you're really making a difference in a lot of these people's lives. I'm sure. Sure. And absolutely. And intellectually and in my heart, that's kind of always where I wanted to be is on this side of it. But practically, you know, it's a leap, you know, it really is. You're kind of putting yourself out there in a way you didn't necessarily have to on the defense side. Uh, the whole compensation structure is different. The incentives are all very different. Uh, so it was kind of a leap of faith. Um, and, you know, I can, I talked with people uh, who I know personally, professionally, who've, you know, made the jump before me and I consulted them and figured out whether this was a smart move for me to do. And after, you know, thinking on it and talking with a couple people, talking with my family, it ultimately made sense. And I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that I did it. Yeah. I always have the phrase from a, a great lawyer in California, his name's Brian Panish who says, uh, when you're on the defense side, you get paid per hour. When you're on the plaintiff side, you get paid perhaps. And that's always sort of stuck in my head in terms of how different it is on the defense side versus the plaintiff side. Another big difference is when you're on the defense side, you know, you get a case that's already sort of prepackaged. It's either that it's been investigated by an insurance company or an adjuster a little bit, and uh, it's handed off to you to help pre-suit or a file lands on your desk because one of your clients has been sued. Um, how is it different on the plaintiff side? We're starting from the very beginning. You get a call. How do you know it's a case? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So one of the nice things, and this is kind of particular to nursing home cases, um, the nursing homes are a very highly regulated industry. And the main governmental body that regulates nursing homes is the Illinois Department of Public Health. And one of the things that the Department of Public Health does is they routinely and upon a complaint will investigate the circumstances of an injury. So what I always recommend people to do if they haven't done so already by the time they contact me is to contact public health. And what public health will do is they'll go into the facility upon receiving a complaint and they'll do an investigation. And what that investigation is going to consist of is reviewing whatever records they want to review uh, for that patient or any number of patients. It's really their discretion. Uh, they'll interview staff members involved, uh, the administrative staff involved. They'll go through policies and procedures, and they'll apply the situation that occurred to the state and federal regulations applicable to nursing homes. And based on the review based on their interviews with staff members, they will apply the facts to the regulations and make a determination whether or not the nursing home was in substantial compliance with those regulations. And if they are found not to be in compliance, they'll receive a citation. And the citation will not only cite what part of the regulations they're not in compliance with, 
It'll provide all the facts and interviews and documents in support of that. And so as a plaintiff's attorney, that is a, can be a really helpful document um, because you have statements, you have policies, so you have all this information already at your disposal. And it's weird, these IDPH citations, and, oh, and by the way, if they're found to be in compliance, all it is is one sentence. It just says they're found to be in substantial compliance with the regulations, and that's it. There's no reasons why. So you don't get any of that information. So it's kind of an interesting process, and it can, depending on the determination, give you either a lot of helpful information or no helpful information at all. It's very interesting how they'll lay it all out if there is a violation, but if there isn't, you don't get anything. You just get sort of silence. And, and it's important to note that the IDPH's determination about whether or not it's a violation has basically no bearing on whether there's a legal case or not. Um, and barring unusual circumstances, which we may talk a little bit about later, those determinations aren't really seeing the light of day in court uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, but generally speaking, uh, just because there is a determination doesn't mean that you're going to win your case. And just because there isn't a determination doesn't mean you're going to lose your case. So say there's not a determination um, and you're trying to get started you know, oftentimes I have not handled the the volume of nursing home cases that you have, but I've handled a few. And what I've found in every single one is that I never get the full medical record, um, especially now that medical records are all electronic. So can you talk to me a little bit about the chart, so to speak, what we're looking for, what's important to find so you can best protect these, these residents? Absolutely. That's a very difficult and complicated question. I actually gave an hour-long presentation to the DuPage County Bar Association about this. So if you have trouble sleeping at night and you remember the DuPage Bar, find it on the website, take a listen. Uh, it's got some good information there. But basically... Yeah, the, I attended. The, it was very good. <laughs> the, I, I noticed you. I noticed you in the back trying not to fall asleep. You know, we're going to leave it there. I stayed awake. You know, I stayed it's, awake. It's, it's, it's a dry... Good. It's a, it's a dry, I, the only reason you stayed awake is because I threw uh, Big Lebowski humor within the, which I saw you responding to. I think you're the only one in that age range who understood what I was talking about. You have to love the dude. You have to. Yeah, absolutely. And you got to keep it interesting, especially when you're talking about electronic health records. Very um, true. But the gist of it is, is that there's a concept out there that was from the paper chart days that there is a complete medical record. And that's not really true anymore. There are the electronic health records are reports that are run based off of information input by healthcare providers into a database that is usually stored within a cloud. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that there are an basically unlimited variety of reports that could potentially be run based off that information. However, these reports aren't necessarily going to give you any new or usable information. So it's important for attorneys to educate themselves about what the vital information is from a, either a hospital or a nursing home and make sure that those reports are available to you. There are certain things that all nursing homes are supposed to report on and have records of, you know, like vital signs, um, lab values nursing notes, progress notes, MDS reports, uh, physician's orders. I mean, it just goes, it goes on and on. And, and you have to understand each of these different sections 
where they fit into the larger picture of a residence chart, and then determine, do I have all of that information or is there more out there? There's also the aspect of, okay, I have this information that's been produced to me. Has it been altered? Has it been modified? Have there been any changes? And that's usually in the form of an audit trail. And there's been some recent updates to the federal legislation pertaining to electronic health records. It did say before that they had to have audit trails. That's been reaffirmed in the most recently passed version of the Cures Act. And so now what we're seeing is kind of a trend towards, yes, this is 100% part of the health record. You shouldn't need a separate request to get it. And what that should show you is who put what into the chart and when. And if it was changed, when it was changed, and by who. And so what that means is you're able to identify late changes, notes that were uh, added after the fact, not contemporaneous with the incident, and that can lead to some interesting things. Yeah, that has to be a wealth of information, the audit trail, especially when you have records that look like there may be a discrepancy. I just won a motion in uh, Cook County to obtain an audit trail where uh, my client's reason for discharge was changed 24 days after her death. And so what else has been changed in that chart? I need to know, I need to find out. And why would you be changing this, you know, 24 days after she's been, um, you know, she's passed away. So I'm sure that there's a wealth of information that's beyond just what we're used to seeing in terms of nurses notes and doctor's notes and CNA charting and things like that. how are you using the chart throughout the case to help you prove what you need to prove uh, and, and get to where you need to go? Sure. It really starts in nursing home cases with the framework for the care that's being provided to the resident. And this is, this is true for basically every case that involves a nursing home. You have the care model, which is, first of all, the initial assessment. When they walk in the door, what is their health status, what is their mental status, what is their functional status. And that not only determines their baseline condition, so you have an understanding what the resident's situation is when they come in, it also determines the care that's going to be provided, the types of services that are going to be provided, and the the level of their needs. And so that all needs to be done. And And what risk factors they have for injuries. You know, the most common cases that we generally see from nursing homes are falls and bed sores. Those are the two major injuries that occur within the nursing home setting. And so when it comes to bed sores, they need to assess, assess the resident's mobility status, their risk for skin breakdown, which is in the form of a Braden scale or some other uh, assessment tool that has to be done upon admission and it has to be done at certain in- intervals thereafter. And then a fall assessment. Similarly, the, similarly you need to assess their mobility status how much assistance they need for getting in and out of bed, uh, for transferring in and out of bed, and then ambulating, and what kind of devices they need, things like that. So that all needs to be done. And then sometimes, if that's all done and the injury happens later on in the resident's stay, you have to look, well, did they have a change of condition between when they arrived and when the injury occurred? You know, did they get sick? Did they have some other issue or either a physical issue or a health issue that limited their mobility that made them more susceptible to falls. Did the nursing home properly reassess them upon that change of condition and implement new interventions to meet their current needs? 
And that is a process that needs to be ongoing throughout the resident's stay to ensure that they're safe, to ensure that they're healthy and they remain free from injury. So you got to use the chart to focus on those things to establish that with the nursing home. And then if you find that the nursing home didn't do their job, they didn't meet the resident's needs, they didn't assess the resident's needs, or they didn't reevaluate the resident's needs once those needs had changed, that's when you're, where your liability case begins. And that makes perfect sense. When we talk about liability, and you mentioned it earlier, nursing homes are highly regulated. You know, uh, It starts with the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act, OBRA, um, from the 1980s where there are a lot of, of regulations for nursing homes on the federal level. Um, but Illinois has a comparable regulatory framework, don't they? Talk to me about the Nursing Home Care Act and how uh, it helps residents and protects residents. Yeah, so the Nursing Home Care Act is a comprehensive statute that kind of governs the way that nursing homes operate in the state of Illinois. There's also a corresponding section of the Illinois Administrative Code that is somewhat duplicative, but has some additional provisions that pertain to the rights and responsibilities uh, pertaining to nursing homes and nursing home residents. So the Nursing Home Care Act, though, uh, has a resident bill of rights, and particular among those for us, for our purposes as injury attorneys, is that they have the right to remain free from abuse and neglect. And abuse and neglect are defined within the statute. Uh, You can look all this stuff up. It's right there in black and white for you. Um, And what it generally means is they need to be provided the medical services and care sufficient to meet their needs. At the end of the day, that's basically what what all this means. And also to be free from abuse is, you know, a more intentional type situation where residents are taken advantage of, they're physically abused, they're mentally abused, um, because as we know, they're vulnerable uh, in those situations. You know, the staff is there 24 hours a day, the family is not. Sometimes they have uh, mental capacity issues where they're not able to articulate things that occur uh, to their family, to to other staff members. Um, And so it's a very vulnerable population. Uh, There was a long history of, you know, incidents happening in nursing homes that kind of spurred these, uh, that was the impetus for the Nursing Home Care Act initially. And, you know, it, it really kind of is a it, it's it's so much more complicated than what I just said, but there's a huge umbrella of regulations from the Nursing Home Care Act, and that that kind of governs the rights and responsibilities of the nursing homes and nursing home residents. And under the Nursing Home Care Act, you can also bring claims in court, can't you? Oh, absolutely. The Nursing Home Care Act. Um, some statutes, as you know, don't have a private right of action associated with it. Uh, OBRA, as you just mentioned, is one of them. Uh, That's a federal statute that pertains to nursing homes. Um, If you participate in Medicare, you have to be in compliance with OBRA. Uh, But a violation of OBRA doesn't necessarily give rise to a lawsuit because there's no private right of action within the statute. Uh, The Nursing Home Care Act explicitly says that violations of the Nursing Home Care Act give rise to a cause of action that you can file a suit in court for. Explain to us. you know, the interplay between the Nursing Home Care Act and oftentimes, tragically, residents are dying because they may have had a fall or a bed sore that leads to their their death. Um, how does the Wrongful Death Act in Illinois interplay with the Nursing Home Care Act? Um, how do those two things work together or work separately so that you can advance a case? So, yes, when you have a resident who's deceased, um, you end up bringing the suit on behalf of the resident's estate. 
And if the injury that the residents suffered at the nursing home was the cause or contributed to their death, what you end up doing is this. Uh, you end up filing the first count against the nursing home for violations of the Nursing Care Act, Nursing Home Care Act that led to their injury. And then you end up filing a second count also against the nursing home, alleging that those violations were negligent and that negligence caused or contributed to cause their death. So that's generally how you use those two statutes to fully represent not only the patient, but the patient's family for the loss they suffered. While we're on the topic of the Nursing Home Care Act, there was uh, some groundbreaking case law this year that affected the Nursing Home Care Act and affected how attorneys' fees work in conjunction with the Nursing Home Care Act. Can you talk to us about the fee-shifting provision? And tell me about this Grower case that I'm hearing a lot about. Sure. So Grower is a recent decision that came down, um, and it discussed, among many other things, it's a really long opinion. It's like 50 pages. But one of the main things that's applicable to nursing home litigation in Illinois is the calculation of fees and costs. And the reason that's important is because under the Nursing Home Care Act, a resident who prevails at trial gets awarded their actual fees and costs. So the question becomes then, how are attorney's fees calculated? And prior to Grower, there was some case law out there on this issue, but it was kind of unclear. Um, There was uh, some cases where the attorney's fees were calculated pursuant to the Lodestar method, which is basically the number of hours worked on a case multiplied by an hourly rate, and the court would determine whether or not that was reasonable. And the other way was on a contingency basis, which is generally you know, one-third of whatever the verdict is. And the thing that's important about nursing home cases when it comes to fees and costs is that's a lot of times that's what enables an attorney to bring that case on behalf of a resident. You know, the one of the reasons the fee shifting and cost shifting measure is in there to begin with is because without it, a resident, it may not make sense to bring a lawsuit on behalf of the resident because the costs associated um, with just even just the costs associated with bringing a case can be substantial. Uh, in the Grower case, for example, they spent $150,000 on experts, on deposition transcripts, on demonstrative exhibits, and, you know, if there weren't those kind of provisions, it would be impossible to bring that kind of a case against facility because it wouldn't make sense. So, and as you know, in, in general litigation, you know, the fees and the costs are deducted from whatever settlement or verdict is achieved. So for example, you got a $100,000 case, a $100,000 verdict at trial. Um, the attorneys would generally get one third of that. So that would come off the top and then whatever costs would be deducted from that as well. Um, so in the nursing home case, if you got a $100,000 verdict, in addition, that would go to your client. And then you would petition the court for your fees and your costs. And the fees would generally, and the court would determine whether or not the fees and costs were reasonable and then make an award based on that. And in the Grower case, they uh, this is for, uh, a verdict from friend of the pod, Margaret Battersby Black and her firm, the verdict was in excess of $4 million. And so they petitioned the court for their fees. They went by uh, their contingency fee agreement with their client and asked for one third of the damages awarded under the Nursing Home Care Act, which ended up being an amount in excess of a million dollars. And the defendants, you know, fought back against this saying, you know, that's not necessarily how this should be calculated. 
that this is an unreasonable amount under the circumstances and that it should be that they didn't keep their time and they should be restricted to the lodestar method. And what the Grower Court ultimately decided is that no, all that really matters is that the fees are reasonable under the circumstances and are consistent with the market rate for those services. And in injury cases and in nursing home cases, they determined that the market rate for those services uh, is generally one third of whatever the amount is. That's generally how these contingency fee agreements work. Therefore, that's a reasonable uh, level of attorney's fee. And so that's that created some really nice case law out there. Um, the other the other aspect that they analyzed was the costs. So prior to Grower, there was a lot of confusion. It wasn't really addressed much in the in the previous cases concerning Nursing Home Care Act fee awards, but what costs are compensable. And obviously the big issue with costs in nursing home cases is the expert fees, uh, expert costs, because uh, that can get really expensive. Generally in a Nursing Home Care Act case, you're going to have two experts, sometimes more. You're always going to have a nurse to talk about standard of care, to talk about how the uh, nursing home should operate. And you're generally going to want to have a physician to talk about proximate cause and damages. And you may have the specialist, depending on whatever issues are involved in the case. Uh, so that can add up really quickly. And the case law was kind of unclear whether or not that was a compensable cost under the Nursing Home Care Act. And the Grower case said, yes, expert fees, expert costs, you know, trial exhibits, demonstratives, those are all compensable costs under the scheme. So it, it was a really good case for the plaintiff. It kind of clarified um, a lot of the gray area issues when it came to fees and costs in nursing home cases. And I'm sure is going to be utilized by myself and other practitioners in the nursing home uh, care act area for years to come. Yeah. It sounds like um, it's a very, very big win for residents, their families and for, for plaintiff's lawyers, most importantly because of the risk associated with uh, the inherent risk with the cases that we take, you know um, I've heard it said time and again, defense lawyers get paid per hour and we get paid perhaps. And so the real uh, nice thing about this case is that I, I believe it, it levels the playing field and allows us to better represent um, families of victims of nursing home abuse and neglect or residents themselves. Um, but to your point about experts, um, you know, you're right. These are expert intensive cases. They can be at least. Um, but right from the get go, do you need an expert to bring a nursing home case the same way you would a medical malpractice case? That's a great question. And like most legal questions, the answer is generally it depends. Um, so th there's a case, a Supreme Court case called EADS. And EADS is one of the seminal nursing home care, care act cases in Illinois. And the court in EADS determined that, a, that the nursing home care act falls outside of the scope of the Healing Arts Malpractice Act, which regulates medical malpractice cases. Um, one of the reasons that they decided that was because of the very different regulatory schemes contained within them. You know, you have the Nursing Home Care Act where you can get fees and costs if you prevail, which is different than the Healing Arts Malpractice Act. Um, there's an opportunity for punitive damages contemplated within the Nursing Home Care Act where there is not within the Healing Arts, it's explicitly prohibited within the Healing Arts Malpractice Act. The Healing Arts Malpractice Act 
provides um, has to do with hospitals and has to do with individual medical providers. Uh, the Nursing Home Care Act only has to do with licensees of nursing homes. It doesn't implicate physicians or medical groups within it. Um, and there's also the different reasons why each of those statutes was enacted. Uh, the Nursing Home Care Act was enacted as kind of a full reform of the nursing home industry based on you know, history of allegations of you know, neglect and abuse in, in those situations um, with particularly vulnerable people. And the Healing Arts Malpractice Act was generally enacted to stem what was perceived at the time to be uh, an epidemic of medical malpractice cases that were flooding the court system and driving insurance premiums for doctors through the roof. So for those reasons, uh, among others, uh, and there's also the fact that uh, the Nursing Home Care Act had been on the book for at least, I think it was six years before the Healing Arts Malpractice Act came into existence. And so the court reasoned that if they had wanted nursing homes to be part of the Healing Arts Malpractice Act, they would have explicitly said so and overruled that regulatory scheme that was already in place. They chose not to because the regulation, because it's different. So for those reasons, among others, um, the answer, generally speaking, is no, you don't. However, it also depends on who your defendants are in the case. Did you name individual uh, providers? Did you name the director of nursing as a direct defendant? Did you name a wound care nurse as a direct defendant? Do you name individual nurses or CNAs? Because if you did, that takes you outside of the Nursing Home Care Act. If you're implicating individual providers, that's healing arts malpractice. Um, in addition, did you name a, or never mind, I was going to talk about management companies, but that has nothing to do with healing arts malpractice. That's all right. So, what are some scenarios where you've pled something under the Nursing Home Care Act, but you still think you'll probably need a 622, a physician's report, an affidavit of merit? So the Nursing Home Care Act actually defines something called personal care. And personal care has to do with the supervision, the monitoring, and the assistance of residents with their activities of daily living. If your allegations have to do with personal care type issues not being done appropriately within the nursing home, you're most likely going to be okay proceeding to court without a 622 affidavit. However, if your allegations fall more under the nursing context, for example, um, if you're alleging that the resident developed a bed sore and that bed sore became infected because the nurse failed to adequately monitor the resident, they failed to report changes of conditions to the physician, they failed to appreciate signs and symptoms of infection, that may take your case within the realm of healing arts malpractice, and more likely you would be required to get a 622 affidavit. So it really depends on the defendants, it depends on the nature of the allegations as well. And that makes perfect sense. So um, a lot of these cases, unfortunately, deal with wrongful death issues. They deal with a family who's lost a loved one as a result of some sort of nursing home negligence. Um, what's going on with the statute of limitations, though, when it comes to wrongful death and when it comes to these kinds of cases? Uh, can you shed some light on this sort of murky area? Sure. So let, let me kind of take those one at a time. Um, when you have a, a death situation 
in a nursing home where the negligence of the nursing home caused or contributed to cause the resident's death. Um, that what you end up having to do is you have to plead two different causes of action against the nursing home. Uh, the first is for the violations of the resident's rights under the Nursing Home Care Act that caused the injury and led to the death, and then a separate count under the Wrongful Death Act uh, for the benefit of the family members who were deprived of their loved one due to the negligence of the nursing home. But with regards to the statute of limitations issue, um, this was a situation where everyone kind of thought they understood how things worked, and then a case came down, and that kind of changed everyone's thinking. Um, so the case was Giles versus Parks, which came down in 2018. That's uh, a first district case in Illinois. And the facts of that case were that a the plaintiff was involved in a, in a car accident. They were in a coma for 24 hours and then died. Uh, the representative of that person's estate filed suit two years the day after the person deceased. And the defense filed a motion to dismiss saying that the suit was untimely because it was more than two years since the date of the incident. Uh, the plaintiff argued that the person was under a total disability because they were in a coma for that 24 hours and therefore the statute of limitations was told for that small period of time. And what the Giles court said was that that's not the case. So because the person is not filing suit on their own behalf, a representative of the state was appointed, that representative of the state was competent, and that representative of the state knew or should have known that to the, of the date of the accident. And there was no excuse for that person to file late. So that, that, was, that created you know, a panic and there started, a bunch of motions started to get filed in court. And the reason that's so applicable to nursing home cases is because the general thought was before this uh, Giles case that, you know, residents of the nursing home a lot of time are under a legal disability. Uh, they have mental capacity issues. And generally speaking, a lot of them have powers of attorneys in the forms of family members who are legally responsible for their decisions and their decision making and their ability to access the courts. And so despite that, the, the thought was that the resident had, or the resident's family had two years from the date of the resident's death to file a suit on their behalf. And that's kind of how things had, before the Giles case, that's kind of how things, everyone assumed that that's what the law was. And so after Giles, there were a rash of uh, motions to dismiss in a lot of nursing home cases. Yeah, so more recently, there was two cases that came down that kind of corrected the course that Giles set us on. Uh, there's the Zayed versus Clark Manor case, uh, which involved the nursing home resident and their family brought suit more than two years after the injury occurred, but less than two years after the resident had deceased. And the court ended up disagreeing with the Giles court's reasoning, uh, saying that the statute meant to preserve the resident's rights, not reduce them and ultimately said that the suit was allowed to proceed. Um, that reasoning was reaffirmed in a case called Mickiewicz, I probably mispronounced that and I apologize, versus Generations at Regency, which is a 2020 case, uh, reaffirmed the rationale in Zayed, uh, also involved a nursing home uh, case with similar fact pattern and kind of steered us back on the course, the correct course, uh, because it, it is really vital 
for nursing home residents to not have their rights diminished in any way. And it, it, it sometimes the situation at the nursing home isn't clear to the family members until well after the resident has actually deceased. Um, a lot of times in my personal experience, we have clients come to the office and they don't know what happened. They, they know that the resident was fine when they saw them last and then they deceased and they have no idea what happened in the interim. And so it takes some digging. It takes some you know, investigation to kind of determine whether or not there is a case there. Um, so it's really important to preserve those rights. And the courts have kind of course corrected a little bit from the Giles case, even though it is still good law on the books. But those uh, subsequent cases have really distinguished and preserved the rights of residents, you know, who are generally in a state of incapacity. So it's very important. I'm glad the courts have kind of come to their senses and uh, moved on from that decision and the Giles decision in a lot of ways. Yeah, good to be back on track. Good to be moving in the right direction in a way that we can actually help people and protect people. That Giles decision is a, is a pretty nasty one, and I'm not a huge fan of it, but I'm glad that we've course corrected. Um, now, if we can just course correct everywhere else, we'd be good. Uh, another thing that I find that a lot of people don't uh, aren't aware of, and then it comes you know up on them and sort of bites them, is the arbitration clause. Um, you hear about arbitration clauses in a nursing home context all the time. So tell us about arbitration clauses in nursing home cases. And in my opinion, most importantly, how do you get around them? Sure. So arbitration clauses are valid in the nursing home context. Um, and that's been reaffirmed recently uh, by the federal government. And so what you have and what that's resulted in, in a lot of facilities putting an arbitration clause either directly into the contract or having a separate arbitration uh, addendum to the admission contract that specifically states that all disputes would be resolved out of court and in a court in pursuant to an arbitration. Um, and Illinois uh, has affirmed that there's a case Carter versus SCC Odin Operating Company um, and that says that arbitration clauses in the nursing home context are enforceable. Uh, however, with a caveat, they're not binding upon the heirs of the nursing home resident who signed it. So if you have a, a wrongful death situation in a nursing home, technically what could happen is that the Nursing Home Care Act claim could be arbitrated and then the wrongful death claim could be pursued in court. And, and that's problematic for everybody. Because what that means is you have two things proceeding simultaneously, or you have one stayed pursuant to, you know, discovery being conducted in the other. It's just a mess. Um, but with regards to your other question about uh, how can they be, uh, how can these um, agreements be nullified? It, it really comes down to contract law type issues. Um, is the agreement properly filled out and signed by both parties? If you take a close look, a lot of times they're not. They might not be signed by the appropriate person on the resident's behalf. For instance, if the resident doesn't have uh, capacity, did they sign it on their own behalf? Because uh, if they did and they have a power of attorney, that may not be valid. Um, in addition, was it signed by both parties? Because it's a mutually enforceable document. If the facility didn't sign it, if that contract is probably not going to be enforceable either. You could also make an argument that uh, it's basically a contract of adhesion, you know, because there's unequal bargaining power when it comes to admission between the resident and the facility. 
you know, if it's baked into the contract somewhere and it's not explicitly separated or there's no consideration given for that, you know, you can make those type of arguments. Um, and then sometimes the terms of the arbitration agreement are so oppressive that they're not allowed to stand any kind of scrutiny in court. Um, I fought and successfully got a resident out of an arbitration clause because it not only was an arbitration clause, it was a damages limitation and it waived their rights to fees and costs under the Nursing Home Care Act. So they took away by virtue of this clause, I mean, a bunch of rights that were afforded to them um, as a nursing home resident with basically nothing else in consideration for it. Um, So we were about to really get into it uh, litigation wise and they ended up withdrawing their uh, motion to compel the case into arbitration. We proceeded on in court. So there are ways, uh, but you really need to sit and go through the contract with a fine tooth comb and think about these contract law type issues and see if they apply to the case at hand. That makes perfect sense. Those uh, tend to be tricky issues. Contracts was not my forte, but it's vitally important in this context and making sure that we're able to pursue these cases in court and get them in front of juries where they belong, uh, as opposed to a forced arbitration process, which tends to be very, very unfair. One last thing. Yeah, that too. One last thing I want to talk about, I think, uh, while we're on the topic of fundamental unfairness, is with the pandemic, uh, at least here in Illinois, and there's been a broader discussion about it across the country. But right now, uh, as of April 1st, our governor has given some immunity, not a blanket immunity, but some immunity to nursing homes, long-term care facilities, and other medical providers as it relates to the COVID-19 pandemic. Has that changed your outlook on these cases? Has it changed the way that you practice? Um, and how are you handling that order? Um, what, what's your take on it? So that's a really difficult and complicated kind of question. But the first thing uh, we'll do is start with the order. Uh, the order, it's, it's written in a very broad fashion. It insulates healthcare facilities and healthcare workers from negligence during this time of the COVID crisis. Um, what it doesn't insulate them from is willful and wanton conduct, which is something above negligence. So we're talking about reckless endangerment. Um, And as we know, with the onset of COVID, nursing home residents have been the ones most affected uh, by this crisis uh, with infections in terms of loss of life. Um, I know that the local nursing homes where I live have had a rash of infections kind of making their way through the homes. And the way when it comes to willful and wanton conduct with with COVID patients uh, during this time, what the case to be made for someone who's been affected that way would be if a facility has a known and documented history of failing to adhere to infectious disease protocols. And that can be found in IDPH citations, lawsuits, and other documents. That could be a way to assert a resident's rights in this time. And in addition, you know, the CDC and other IDPH and other regulatory bodies have issued guidance about how nursing homes are supposed to operate during this time. If there are blatant uh, failures to adhere to these recommendations and guidelines, that could provide the basis for a cause of action even during this time. And then what really remains to be seen, and I will certainly be paying attention to how these things play out in court, is whether or not this immunity covers all manner of injury during this time of COVID. 
for instance, if a resident isn't ad being adequately assisted and falls, would that be covered under this immunity? If residents not being turned to repositioned in an appropriate and timely fashion, would that be covered under this immunity? Do those things have anything to do with care being provided uh, pursuant to COVID? You know, how the courts are going to treat that and ultimately how a jury is going to treat that will be interesting to see. And it's certainly something I'm going to be keeping my eye on. Um, but in the meantime, when it comes to my current clients, it, it doesn't really affect the way that we're approaching these things. You know, we're still here to fight for the rights of residents. Um, and, you know, the law is what it is. We're going to do our best to, to navigate it. Um, and the courts will really, I think, provide more guidance than the, uh, than the order about how this will be practically applied uh, to the situations and injuries facing our clients. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding it, which, um, you know, our careers as injury lawyers tend to have a lot of uncertainty in and of themselves, but this creates a lot of uncertainty around um, how we can best protect residents or patients or whomever. The, the upside of that is, at least in my opinion, we have a very, very good judiciary in Illinois, um, very bright, very understanding, uh, and very even-handed. So I'm confident that in the long run, um, we'll still be able to pursue these cases and get justice. Um, well, thanks, Matt, for sharing your deep dive and insight into um, a really interesting world inside of the injury uh, practice. It's really, really interesting to hear about it. Um, very cool, and I really appreciate you sharing all that. Absolutely. It, it is its own little world. I mean, it has its own rules, its own regulations, its own language. And, you know, I'm happy to talk about it, happy to field questions if anyone has uh, issues with a case they're working on. Um, happy to talk with them about that as well, because it, you really do need to know the language. You need to know the rules uh, to figure out the best way to represent your clients. Before we sign off, uh, like we do every time, uh, we're going to give our 30-second trial tip. And I know you've given us a lot of trial tips today and a lot of case tips today. But do you have a 30-second trial tip that you can give us for today? Well, I feel like I'm turning this podcast into a book review, but I'm doing it anyway. Um, so I recently read Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, the most recent one, Talking to Strangers, which is excellent. Um, great and book. I'm a big fan of his. He's a great author, really interesting thinker. And so I was putting that one back on the shelf and then I was looking and right next to it was the book Blink, which also by Malcolm Gladwell, which I haven't read in years. And so I pulled that off the shelf and I devoured it in the matter of, you know, 36 hours, read through the whole thing. Um, there's some really great stuff out there that's directly applicable to what we do as trial lawyers. Um, he talks about the power of priming, you know, priming meaning causing the brain to interpret the same information differently based on context and then relationship to other information. You know, that's important when you're presenting your case, uh, how you want to frame things, this, the sequence that you want to go through. Um, it also talks about thin slicing, which is a powerful tool that people use to make judgments about complicated issues in a matter of seconds. You know, it's, it's honestly, he talks about, it being best used for complicated decisions, which is actually counterintuitive. Um, yeah. But it really, again, it can really, you can really apply it to the way that you present your case, present your witnesses. Um, and, and the, really for everything, the way that you dress from, you know, what visuals you want to put up in opening. Um, it also talks about the power of expectations. People want others to conform with their preset, preset expectations. And that can be either good or bad. 
you know, if you look at the case of a defendant medical practitioner, you know, people have a certain regard and certain set of standards they want to hold doctors to. And if that person isn't meeting those standards, you know, that's going to work negatively for them. Obviously, the same can be said for your client as well. So it's very important to have them conform to, to think about that effect when you're putting on your case. And, you know, at the end of the day, he talks about more information does not necessarily create better decisions. You know, as plaintiff's attorneys, we're always taught to simplify the case. And what, we're, what we mean by simplifying is what information do you actually need to make the best decision? You know, so you really want to focus on that. And there may be information that's relevant to the situation, but not the decision to be made. And so you really need to think hard about what evidence you're putting on, why you're putting it on, and really make careful determination so you're giving the jury the information that they need to do their job. That, that's awesome. I'm a huge Malcolm Gladwell fan, and there's so many books, and I'm, I think it'd be great if we did a book review all the time. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, there's so many books like that that are, that are applicable, whether they be psychology or social psychology um, or sales or any number of things that really apply to what we do because what we're trying to do is not argue or fight like you see sometimes on TV, but really persuade and engage with people and tell stories. I look at what I do as professional storytelling more than anything else. And it's just telling the story of somebody who had something, some serious injury unnaturally thrust into their lives that they could not have otherwise avoided because of somebody's negligence. So um, yeah, that's, that's a great book, great couple of books. Um, my 30 second trial tip is something that I was reminded of this morning when I was preparing a witness for a trial I have in July that hopefully we'll be able to present. Um, it was a brain injury case. And in a lot of my brain injury cases, the things I, I have to remind myself are that my client is not the best storyteller in that sense. They're not the best historian of what happened because their memory is altered. They have headaches. They have any number of symptoms that prevent them from remembering exactly what happened or how their lives have changed. So it's important to reach out to family, friends, coworkers, bosses, um, you know, people that can give you an outside perspective of how this person's life has changed, what their true pain and suffering is, how their, their loss of normal life is and what it is um, that you can explain it to a jury. You know, I liken it to you look at yourself in the mirror every day and you don't notice that you've changed, but you run into somebody you haven't seen in a year and they notice that you've changed one way or the other. Um, it's a lot like that. If you are talking to your client, your client may not know how they're moving different or how they're walking or talking different or how their emotions are changed or any number of things that other people will notice. So make sure you're doing a deep dive into uh, witnesses just beyond uh, your client in, in a lot of these cases. I, I say in every case, so you can really explore who these people are as people and get fair justice compensation for their injuries. Great advice as always, John. And with that, we're going to wrap up our episode for today. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, and episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook and Instagram. You can always email us at, at ontrialpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, please also rate and subscribe to podcasts on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you download your podcasts. It helps us get the word out, make us more searchable. And until next time, we'll see you on trial. Thanks, John. Thanks, Matt.